Yo, what's shaking? Today, I sit with touring industry entrepreneur, Paul Bradley. Paul is the founder of Eventric and creator of the notorious touring software, Master Tour. If you have that entrepreneurial spirit and strive to make a difference in your industry, this episode is definitely one to check out. Paul walks us through his story of being a drummer in a touring band to building the leading touring software used by thousands of artists. This is an episode you don't want to miss. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. Today we've got a very special guest. We've got Paul Bradley, the CEO and founder of Eventric and Master Tour. Paul, how's it going? It's going great. Thanks for having me. All right. So, Paul, why don't you tell us a little bit about what you do? Um, I'm the CEO and founder of Eventric. We are a touring technology company. Um, our primary product that most people know us for is Master Tour, which is a software service that uh, touring professionals use to manage the logistics, scheduling, ticketing, um, venue data, pretty much everything that goes into executing a tour. We also have a product called Live Access Ticketing, which is a kind of a VIP ticketing product, but is isolated to the friends and family industry tickets for a big chunk of the industry, mostly stadium arena size bands that you know have the need to manage hundreds or thousands of friends and family requests. So they're kind of these off the grid special tickets that the bands allocate um, for the friends, family, industry, vendors, et cetera. So uh, what I do is pretty much um, not pretty much a little bit of everything to run the business. And, you know, that job description has changed dramatically over the years. I went from the early years of being the actual developer, co-developer of Master Tour, you know, to now really not knowing much about any of the development, except, um, you know, for what I see, what works, what doesn't work. But I fortunately have grown out of the need to be actually writing code. And I've got way more talented people um, doing that for me now everybody knows about master tour everybody that's gone on a tour knows about master tour before we talk into like why you started the business i'm curious to know like where do you see the future of touring you know now like post-covid um ultimately i don't think it's going to change dramatically post-covid you know from the core business of touring it's still um for the foreseeable future covid and i going to be one of the more um, profitable buckets, you know, for an artist, um, as we all know, you know, the dynamic shift of artists making money from selling records and touring to sell records shifted, you know, from the nineties on to where, you know, pretty much, um, if you're lucky, you're getting paid for streams. If not, you just kind of throw it out there to gain popularity, uh, for your tours. So, I mean, I definitely post COVID initially, there's going to be some big changes when touring starts to resurge, there's definitely going to be the need to tour cheaper, more efficiently. Um, obviously, th this was a concern well, well before COVID, but you stick 16 people on a tour bus. I mean, that's not conducive for really any healthy environment, um, especially if you're worried about getting COVID. I can't, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but I would think in three, five years, you know, it, it should be kind of back to total normal, mm -hmm. um, hopefully well before that. Yeah, I do feel the same way. Is there anything that you're able to talk about in terms of like, you know, what kind of software or tools you have in the pipeline that yeah. kind of like get touring back to where it will be? Yeah, I mean, that, that was a big part of the roadmap. You know, the people that have used Master Tour traditionally, you know, we always kind of 
define it as post-contract um, functionality. You know, so once the tour has been set by the um, promoter, by the uh, management, by the artist, once the dates have been decided, contracted, that's when kind of all the information starts to get populated in master tour so that everybody associated with the tour um, during the execution can stay active and stay informed. A lot of services that would allow better informed decisions um, before the contract. So, I mean, we arguably have the best data in the business. We have, you know, thousands of tours, you know, um, hundreds of thousands of miles driven of tickets sold of um, personnel being employed. And we were starting to uh, develop partnerships and, and still are with, you know, some of the biggest promoters and ticketing agencies and booking agencies and travel agencies. Once the tour has been booked, it populates a master tour with all the correct triggers and confirmations. Right. Um, and then it's very useful. So, you know, the ultimate goal is this being, I mean, the original name of master tour is master tour database. You know, we want this truly to be the industry's biggest database of information from, you know, venue requirements from hotel availabilities, you know, from just, you know, truck driving patterns to employment patterns to, um, you know, predictive forecasts on uh, really anything that happens on the tour so that the information can be a lot more informative. And, and really that's, that's the biggest part of the spend on tours is, you know, when you think about putting on a show and all of these things that you have to contract and hire and even the best run tours, there's still a five, 10% of it that are just guessing and, you know, last minute expenditures that, you know, really affect the bottom line. So we want to help kind of, you know, make that part a lot more profitable. As somebody who's like been really into entertainment and technology and music technology in particular, like you're really like a pioneer in this field, you know, in, in this like touring with data and you're innovating within that. And I think that like, that's, that's really why I want to talk to you. So why don't you talk a little bit about like how you got into this? Um, I mean, it certainly wasn't a big master plan after years and years of, you know, postgraduate school. It really started, I was a drummer my entire life, just not really in a band. I went to college um, and, you know, just played drums in a couple bands and just was kind of excited to, you know, be performing live. But then just through a series of random events, I became an independent promoter towards the end of college. This was in Des Moines, Iowa. There wasn't a lot of live music happening or anything that good. So uh, my roommate and I just started a promotion company and, you know, we started reaching out to bands that we knew were being, you know, listened to, you know, with our peers. Um, but again, you know, Des Moines was always kind of a hop over city. Like you would never play in Des Moines because you always had, you know, the quad cities, you had the Midwest, and then you would drive out to Colorado. So we just started reaching out to bands that, you know, were popular at the time said, Hey, you know, we'll give you the guarantee you need come to Des Moines on a Sunday uh, we can guarantee it it'll sell out. And um, it turned out to be the case. It turned out you know, pretty easy to, you know, I mean, looking back, of course, it's easy to get bands to come in when you give them their guarantee. At what point in time was this? This is like the 90s? Yeah. So this was early 90s. Okay. So early 90s. Yeah. And so I guess there wasn't too much going on in Des Moines in terms of like live music, you said. Yeah, not, nothing really at all. So, you know, we, we brought in like Big Head Todd, The Samples, Dave Matthews Band, Widespread Panic, kind of the big jam bands at the time. Um, so that just got me really interested in, you know, and, and again, I wasn't going off a playbook. I didn't have any advisors, you know, or mentors to do it. We just kind of learned as we went, but how did um, you that was really it? exciting. How, how did you I, afford to be able to pay these bands their guarantee? It, 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 they weren't terribly, um, ridiculous guarantees to start with. I mean, and it was always on an off night, like in the middle of February or something. Right. So it was kind of bands were either driving through or 
you know, it's like I knew when I was in a band, you, you took whatever you could on these off nights, you know, even if it just helped you break even, you know, for that day, we really would just went around with the bucket and, you know, collect money from friends to build up the guarantee and kind of give them, you know, tech, you know, quote unquote points, you know, on the profit of the event, or right. it just turned on, you know, turned into giving them as many free tickets as they needed, you know, for them and their friends. Nice. Um, but anyway, that, that, you know, got me really excited in the business. You know, so when I graduated, I moved back to Chicago where I grew up. Um, immediately just started looking for internships and um, I was able to get an internship with a guy that owned a bunch of theaters. He had a band that was renting out a space that he was converting. Um, I just started interning at this band slash management, you know, house um, record label, um, doing anything, just getting coffees, driving the van, you know, picking up drumsticks, like cleaning up after parties that parlayed into, you know, about a year and a half of that. Um, I really was just up for doing anything. I was trying anything, kind of being as you know available as I could. So um, kind of eventually became helping with their booking, helping with the management, helping drive the van across the Midwest, you know, to shows and eventually learning how to everything from load in, you know, to settle a show, to um, negotiate, you know, hotel rooms. So really, I'd be, I, I didn't know I was a tour manager back then, but I was kind of, you know, training to be a tour manager. Uh, right. You were wearing a lot of the hats that like a promoter rep right. would have or like a tour manager, yeah. or probably a production guy. Yeah. I mean, it was really, it was really a little bit of everything. So now we're mid nineties. Um, and then just out of a weird twist of events, um, the band that was the primary band on the label um, needed a new drummer and they just said, Hey, um, and ironically, I, I just booked them a month long Canadian tour. And within two weeks, they're like, Hey, we need a new drummer. Like you could drive the van the best and we think you can play the drums. So be our drummer for, you know, right. until we find a real drummer. So within two weeks, I learned all the songs and, you know, became the tour manager, assistant manager, um, roadie, van driver, and drummer in this band. And that ended up lasting about nine years instead wow. of, you know, in, instead of uh, a month. <laughs> yeah. Instead, it just of just like out. A, instead of like a, a short Canadian tour. Yeah. Was it hard to learn all of their songs within like a few weeks? Yeah, it was. Well, the, the challenge was um, it was a the band was called the Drovers. They were a pretty big uh, regional band in the 90s. And it was a very kind of Irish percussive heavy band. They used to have two drummers and the primary drummer had a stand up gigantic drum set, you know, with kind of all these eclectic um, djembes and tablas and all these things, you know, surrounding it. So I had to learn standing up. Cause that was a big part of the shtick of the band having a, you know, a drummer that stood up. So that, that was more challenging than learning the songs. And, you know, the first show we did was the sold out two sold out shows at Metro, you know, so that was, you know, which is about a thousand capacity. Um, so that was, you know, pretty nerve wracking, you know, having a couple three weeks to practice and then the first show was being these gigantic, you know, huge events in the, the you know, the primo uh, venue in Chicago. Wow. Um, so obviously I, I really enjoyed that. And, and I butchered most of the songs, um, forgot parts, um, started playing the wrong songs, you know, but it was kind of the scripts that the fans didn't notice, you know, yeah. but the band would give me the stink eye. Um, but they were just happy that, you know, it wasn't a blatant, like, you know, restart the entire song because Paul messed up so bad. So for seven ish years, we just toured around the country at the time they had done a movie with Madeline Stowe and Aiden Quinn. It was a, a pretty big movie. Um, they had previously done the soundtrack for Backdraft, so they had a lot of popularity from the press. You know, they performed at the Golden Globes, so it was, it was a pretty decent time to be in a band for the first time. You know, we could get a crowd of 200-plus pretty much anywhere we played. So I kind of cheated into getting into the bands. I really didn't start with the, you know, really grind, you know, only four people in the, in the crowd for five years before you mm -hmm. make it. So I was very fortunate on that. But really, I, I looking back, focused more on the business of the band than actually becoming... Um, 
you know, a percussionist, you know, and actually really learning that craft. I was really very interested in the business. And as we were growing and talking with record labels or talking, you know, with, you know, management companies for support spots or festival things. I mean, that was the really interesting part to me. And, um, you know, so just, it, it kind of progressed from a thinking I was going to be, you know, a rock star drummer uh, for the rest of my life to say, Hey, I have to, I have to parlay this into something else. Because Doing you wanted that, a bit more stability or you just, you know, yeah, right. I, I, I did of interest. I, I wasn't confident enough in my drumming ability that, you know, that was going to be a, a lifelong profession, even though I was enjoying it so much. Um, so throughout the course of this time, just in the background, I was developing software in a database to manage all of the contracts and all of the um, uh, hotels. And, but yeah, I, I was the one settling the shows and we had a booking agent. Um, another guy in the band was more of the manager manager. Right. So, um, you know, we definitely just, you know, it, it, we had a management house. We all lived together. You know, we had a studio in the basement. So it was, it was pretty exciting. During the time we, we recorded an album um, with Steve Albini, you know, had just finished nirvana and breeders you know and so that was just a really exciting you know part of that kind of artistically but during the time i just developed the software to manage this and really not thinking anything of a business of course so how did you have the skills to develop the software like what were you doing it was just it was filemaker you know we kind of plug and play database creation platform it was, it was really easy to do it was very little code you know, it was all visual, but I got more and more kind of into the depth of what it could do. So yeah, I mean, I wasn't a, a classically trained developer. I didn't have any skills. I wasn't a computer science major or anything. It was just all kind of self-taught. That's crazy. And, That's really, yeah. really, that shows your passion, if anything. Yeah. And again, I, I would like to say it was because of, you know, I had this um, brilliance on computer programming, but but back then FileMaker really was a great tool, you know, for starting out. And then you can take it as far as you want. I can't remember exactly what year, but we started, uh, we hired a, a few guys to work with us on the crew. They had all just um, got off the Smashing Pumpkins run for about six, seven years. Wow. And toured with us, you know, three guys, uh, you know, for uh, about a year. One of the guys, Ian Kuhn, had done the similar type of software for the Smashing Pumpkins. He had built this FileMaker database and it was kind of running a lot of the stuff in the background. So he and I just started kind of, you know, geeking out together a little bit on the side and kind of combining certain things. Um, and this got me really excited into it, uh, you know, into what more FileMaker could do. And as I was kind of transitioning out of, you know, wanting to get off the road, I mean, it was it was at least seven years of 200 plus shows a, a year, like in not the best, uh, most comfortable situations. We, you know, would rarely have hotel rooms. We would stay at friends' house or crash on the floor, or sleep in the van, um, and that was exciting for you know, a time. And that got, that got a little old after a while. Sounds like a really long, like pub crawl or, you know. Yeah, it, it's a, again, it was one of the more exciting times in my life. I mean, I had no problems because again, I was lucky to be in a band that was popular. It was making great music and had a, a great live show. So it was really engaging. It was really rewarding to play. So we just stopped touring as much. And Ian and I just started doing random projects on the side for people, website design, database design. We officially incorporated a company uh, January 1st, 2000. And that was really nothing to do with um, the with Master Tour at the time. That was just to, you know, a place where we could send invoices from for kind of our, our database design, web design company that, you know, we were doing on the side. But really, we wouldn't have been here as a company without this. Um, Ian was hired from us by the Dave Matthews Band, circa 96, 97, I think. He introduced, you know, the, the software to the band. They embraced it. They were really excited, um, especially back then. They were, you know, one of the more technology innovative bands. They were the first to really, you know, push Wi-Fi through the systems, uh, through the backstage area, you know, so that everyone uh, could have connectivity, you know, for um, certain things, including Master Tour. You know, back then, 
the Dave Matthews Band crew would have different stations kind of at eight parts of the arena so that they could share uh, the set lists, they could share kind of um, different uh, cues in different, you know, tuning in different songs as Dave would shift the songs, you know, through the middle of a set. So it was really important for every position from front of house to backstage to monitors to, you know, uh, lighting to all have connectivity. So I spent some time with them and just doing anything to kind of learn and help and consult, you know, with anything that the band needed, you know, and, and it became more of a thing where Ian started developing more and more tools uh, for Dave. And it was, yeah, it was called master tour back then, a master tour database. So it, again, still no intention of this being a business, but super exciting, you know, to be involved with a product that the, you know, one of the biggest touring bands was using and asking for more and more features Obviously, there was value here because if Dave Matthews saw the value, then likely right. other other artists around the same size as, as his band was, they, they probably had need for this as well. Well, and that was, again, not a, you know, there wasn't a kind of go-to market plan back then, but it was just exactly that, you know, Dave would be touring and, and you know, play with Neil Young or play with, you know, Foo Fighters or the Beastie Boys and because kind of the community of, of touring back then and still this day, everyone is kind of really interested in what everybody is doing from lighting rigs to, you know, backline to all the technology on the audio side. Yeah. But Dave was really the first one to really embrace, you know, connectivity and data and, and, you know, having this in the system. So people were super, you know, back then they were just giving the software to friends and, you know, Neil Young and in Foo Fighters and Beastie Boys and Third Eye Blind and, just to your point, uh, you know, if this is proving to be very valuable for the biggest bands of the time, um, I knew we were onto something. And it was really, you know, the closest thing I could think of doing that I was that passionate about that was, you know, that would allow me to stay within, you know, the touring industry, which, which I just loved. I mean, I loved everything about it, especially the business of it. I think without even really realizing it, you were kind of finding your niche within the industry. Yeah. And, and again, it was, I don't know if I was finding it. I was doing everything I could to stay in it, but it was just very exciting to have this um, interest in what we were doing. Um, so really I, I turned from everything I was doing to just really promoting master tour. It's still archaic at this point. It was still in FileMaker. You still had to deliver it, you know, on, on CD-ROMs to people. You know, I was flying all over the country just to give demos and, you know, really trying to just promote it. You know, some of the first early adopters of it are some of the you know biggest names in management and tour management now, but, you know, we, we would just really anyone that would listen, I would give a demo to and give it to them for free. You know, I, I had no, uh, you know, pricing model. I didn't think of any, I didn't have a business plan. I didn't have, you know, like really any uh, set goals. I just wanted to get this in front of as many people as I can. And, you know, it wasn't a bad sales cycle. You'd, you know, fly or drive around and go to shows and, you know, meet with tour management backstage. Um, you know, it was, it was really exciting. To do How that. would you get it, backstage though? Like, like if they didn't know you? I had two tactics. One was, you know, definitely leveraging, the Dave Matthews connections, you know, it was definitely all just uh, word of mouth at that point, you know, emailing or talking to people that would be interested knowing that they were coming through Chicago or Minneapolis or a big festival, you know, where I, I knew some people that I could get the proper credentials, you know, to get backstage. So you really needed to use your, your network. Yeah. I mean, this wasn't, you know, back then no one really knew of it. Um, and we were competing with, you know, the, the sales pitch was, I know what you're using now works for you and it's worked for you for 20 years, but you know, we've developed this thing that's going to do it a lot better. Um, so most of the time people are like, no, I'm fine. I've got a fax machine, a cell phone and a, uh, you know, a three ring binder you know, full of day sheets. Like that's all we need. And now 20 years later, people are still using your, your master tour. 
Yeah, yeah. And it's evolved tremendously since then. You know, it was, um, you know, the biggest advantage of doing that in the early days was hearing feedback, you know, from people demoing Master Tour in the early days on what they liked, what they didn't like, what they would need. You know, the biggest, um, I guess, barrier we had was a lot of tours would say, well, yeah, of course, this is going to work for Dave Matthews, you know, and Neil Young and, you know, Beastie Boys. They're the biggest tours out there. They need this. You know, their teams are huge. You know, I'm just playing theaters and clubs, farms. I don't need it. You know, if I only had a year, you know, to make or break the business, it would have never worked. You know, it, it, it took 15 years of like just, you know, hammering, you know, the streets, going to hundreds of shows a year, sometimes not with any connections. I would just buy a ticket um, and, you know, start talking to the front of house guy or just see somebody with a credential and say, hey, can I talk to your tour manager? I mean, most of these people were comfortable and impressed that I wasn't trying to meet the artist. Like I never wanted to meet the artist. Right. I, the artist would be the first one back then that would say, why are we spending anything that we don't have to? So I right. avoided the artist um, at all costs. But, but a few early adopters were huge for us. We had network management was one of the first management companies that used it, which were gigantic. They had, you know, everything from Coldplay to Sum 41, Avril Lavigne, Sarah McLaughlin. They were super adopted to it. Um, Madison House in Boulder, another huge one, lots of great bands, String Cheese and, Michael Fronte, like those were the first companies that we were starting to develop it for a management team, not just tour manager, you know, production manager relationship. And, and then throughout the years, as technology became better, as you know, development tools became better, it was just easier to do things, you know, cheaper to do things. But it got to a point where it was still Ian and I, and we didn't have anybody else, and it kind of got too big. And, you know, without kind of that proper platform foundation that we never created, all the add ons, I mean, it was like a big rubber band ball you know, yeah. with duct tape and staples and eventually just started breaking, you know, there are big tours relying on it for things like guest lists. And uh, when your guest list module crashes at 5 PM on a Friday night in a hometown show, like that's not good for business. You know? Right. So that's horrible. Cause if that happens that, a second time, then, then they'll no. probably drop you. And that happened. And that happened a couple of times, you know, and uh, it was horrible. So right around 2005, I thought, well, this is a business. We've got, you know, a few dozen tours on it, big tours. They want it to work. You know, we don't have the infrastructure and the, the um, bandwidth to develop the things that, that need it to scale. Um, so I just started this long and exhaustive process of learning how to raise money. You know, I'd never done that before. I'd never written a business plan before. Like, if you don't mind sharing, like, how much money were you making at the beginning? Were you guys making enough to, like, even pay yourselves? Oh, no. No, I mean, that came way, way later. You know, we, we were, I mean, I'll never forget the Luther Vandross's production manager was the first one to ask how much it cost. I, I was at the Star Amphitheater, Star Plaza Amphitheater in Indiana. And just on my typical like tour bus demo, expecting to just give them the software, expect them to, you know, just in return for feedback and saying, you know, telling other people about it. And he just said, hey, um, how much is it? And I just made up a price on the spot. And he agreed to it. And I'm like, Hey, that's great. You know, I think it was like $700, you know, for, you know, I mean, and back for then life. there was no, yeah, for life. Yeah. <laughs> you know, back, back then there was no, you know, you didn't have Salesforce. You didn't have these SaaS business models, you know, you didn't have subscription models on software. So, you know, so the first version of master tour, we were just selling for about $700 for lifetime use and support. And, you know, it was great to get, you know, $700 a few times a week. Um, yeah, it's good. But, it's good to cover your rent for a month or two. Yeah. Oh no, that, and that wasn't even covering rent because at this point we were, you know, we had plugins that we were licensing. We had this synchronization technology that we were licensing. Um, so yeah, we we weren't making money. We didn't, you know, we had a little crappy office in the back of a storefront in Chicago that I was sharing with a buddy. You know, kind of really just pretending to try to have a business and make it legit. 
uh, but not not making any money at all and losing money if anything. And that was really pointing to the need to raise money. I mean, I, I just I knew enough to know this is a business. I don't know what the business is yet. I don't know how we're going to make money, but I know um, we have something and we need to start developing, you know, a version of Master Tour that can scale. In this first early stage of your business, did people, when you'd show them the software, were they all really excited and wanted to get on board? Or there were a lot of people at the beginning that were very skeptical saying, yeah, you know, like I, I already do things the way that I like to do it. And, you know, this is not for me. You know, it was it was pretty much equal in thirds. You'd have people that were super excited. They're like, this is what I've wanted for 20 years. You know, I've heard great things from, you know, the Dave guys or from, you know, Neil Young's team or um, whoever. Um, you know, so word was kind of starting to spread that there might be something else out there to use instead of just everybody had their own homegrown systems. Right. The other third was like, hey, this is great, but look what I'm doing. You know, I've developed this FileMaker database, you know, for you know, my band, I mean, what a, a great, great customer that we've had for years, had his own system forever, you know, until about like seven years ago, you know, or five years ago, he had developed his own thing because, you know, he was like us, he developed the tools, he was with an artist forever and developed what they needed. And it was like 50% like ours. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, that's a great question because a lot of the times we would get, and this is what drove a lot of the innovation in the development, we'd get Someone saying, well, this does, you know, 75% of what I need it. This does 75% of what I need to do way better than the way I'm doing it. Right. You know, especially after we had a mobile app and it could push information out to the, it, that, that was a big key bump in the popularity is when we finally had a mobile app and finally it was in the artist, you know, the artist and, you know, management and, um, you know, the other support staff that didn't need to enter data could see the data. Right. Because then it was finally, you know, then we had artists that they didn't care who's, was their tour management. They were so used to master tour. They would say, no, you have to use master tour because this is the way I like to get my information, you know, about, right. Um, and they could actually see it visually. Like right. how many, I guess, like how many tickets right. they've sold or, or right. advancing shows. Right. Cause, cause the, um, you know, back then it, everyone was just reliant on the tour book, you know, which was printed two weeks before a tour. And right. if anything and everything changed, it was still a tour book. It was, you know, still as good as the last day it was printed of information. Um, day sheets, you know, the old days of every morning, you know, you tour manager would walk around, slip day sheets under the hotel door and, you know, and, and, and that, that little things like that, we battled on because that was a very, you know, ceremonial, like traditional part of touring, like waking up in your hotel, grabbing the day sheet, seeing what you're doing for that day. You know, that, that was kind of a, like a, a thing that most people on the road enjoyed. I mean, that was like a, you know, a secure kind of reliant, um, consistent part, you know, of their day. Everything else right. in the day is just scattered and random and problematic, but at least you have your day sheet under the door. So there was little things like that, that we would battle on. Um, and, and then the, the other third of people were just like, no way, like, there's no way I'm ever going to use this. You know, I've been doing this, Paul, you know, since Woodstock, I'm not going to, you know, I'm 62 years old. I'm not, not going to change now. There's no way I need, you know, I've got my flip phone and, uh, you know, my Excel <laughs> And, you know, I don't trust computers like, you know, yeah. well before smart. I mean, this was, you know, right before smartphones. I mean, this is well before, you know, iPads. So, you know, people back then weren't used to living on their device and getting everything from weather, you know, to updates. To So you had a mobile app on flip phones? <clears throat> or, no, or, no we, or once... we had a, I don't know, whatever year the iPhone came out first, that was a, we, about a year after that, we had developed a iPhone app. Wow. So that, you guys were quick. Yeah. I mean, it wasn't like anything, 
um, I think it was actually a FileMaker plugin that FileMaker came out with and we just plugged it in and, you know, you know, the, but the big thing about like user accounts and user access from administrative to read only, like that became like another cog of like, Hey, we have to, you know, the, the drum tech can't see the financials, you know, and you know, it was an all or nothing thing back then. So that was one of the things that we had to evolve to is, um, segmenting out what data, you know, was supposed to be seen by tour accountant management, lead singer. But you go and raise money, like. right? Cause, cause you needed so, to yeah. grow. Which was, um, this, by the time I got my act together to raise money, it was 2008, you know, right during the gigantic financial collapse and recession. So it was a good time, great time to raise money for a business that had a three page business plan, um, <laughs> no real paying customers, no comparable market. I couldn't even tell them what the market size was because who these knows people are paying $700 and 750 bucks <laughs> for life. <laughs> right. I started with a seed round, you know, which is basically just a, a very more informal way to raise money, you know, not institutional. You're not going to uh, private equity or, you know, venture capital. It's really friends and family. And, and I wasn't confident enough in what we were doing to go to friends and family. So I went to friends of friends of family or friends of friends of someone's family's cousin really just pitched this hundreds and hundreds of times. Um, one of the, the good and bad things about our positioning was, you know, my business plan had, Hey, here's who uses it. And so people were like, wow, you know, Dave Matthews, Metallica, you know, BC boys, that sounds really cool. Right. Yeah. So come out and let's have a meeting, you know, so I'd fly to New York or San Francisco and sometimes present in front of the biggest VCs in the business, you know, the Kleiner Perkins and the elevations and um, Hyde Park angels. And elevations is what uh, that's you too is right. Well, not you too, but it, oh, no. it was, uh, and actually some that's because it was, became a really good friend of the company, Roger McNamee, you know, who's one of the, the bigger VCs, you know, in, in the Valley. He started Elevation um, with a bunch of guys, including Bono. They never invested. We were just way too small. And that was one of the problems. You know, one of the key lessons, and I think I mentioned to you previously, I'm like, I kind of wish I had a, an MBA. Um, I kind of wish I had, you know, more experience running a business because I know I needed serious money and it was more money than you could just get by, you know, getting a bunch of people to write small checks for it. Right. So coincidentally, through one of my early investors, I was introduced to a guy that had just sold his tech company, local Chicago guy, brilliant MBA from University of Chicago, super entrepreneur. Um, he helped me structure a series A round, you know, which is kind of a more formal version of raising money, um, turning my three-page business plan into like a 70-page business plan with all the right, you know, points of growth and go-to-market strategies and you know, we were still projecting to be a successful, but not huge company. So for years, we would get in front of these people with big, big money, you know, try at this point, we were trying to raise uh, $2 million, and especially in that era too, you're we still coming out of the recession, um, trying to raise money for a not proven model. And, you know, $2 million is way too much, you know, for some person to write individually. And it's way too little for any institutional money, you know, so any VC, any private equity, you know, they, they want to give you $5 million so you can be a $50 million company and right. flip you in five years. And we were right. just they, like, hey, they want a 10 X yeah. on their money. Right. Like in, in, in three years. And so uh, we spent a lot of time I mean, an exhaustive amount of time and money resources, you know, trying Why don't to you just tell them that you want to be a $50 million business. Well, it, it's funny because they, some of them would just say, well, you're asking for two, you should ask for 10. You shot yourself in the foot. I know. Right. And I couldn't look them in the eye and be like, well, do you want me to just add a zero to all my projections? Cause it's not <laughs> true. I can't lie to you. Say we're going to be a $200 million company, you know, in three years. But so it took five years, you know, we eventually raised, you know, about two thirds of the money. Um, and it was just an incredibly stressful, exciting, 
you know, roller coaster where, you know, you, you needed money by the end of the month or you couldn't, you know, by this point we had 10 employees, you couldn't make payroll, you couldn't pay the rent, you couldn't, I mean, it was, it was a very stressful, but, uh, you know, looking back, it's easy to say that was the better route because I think if, you know, as inexperienced as we were, especially about how we needed to grow the business, I think if we had gotten $2 million, like in cash day one, we would have done the pets.com, like stupid internet.com explosion of growth, you know, with no paying customer model and right. had like Check espresso machines and, you know, yeah. and pinball machines and like, uh, you know, whatever, um, hired, you know, probably 30 people that we didn't need. So it, it you know, we really fine tuned the business, the market, uh, the product, you know, evolved a lot during that point. And, and fortunately we didn't have any competition. So it wasn't like do or die, you know, at worst people just weren't buying our software. They would just go back to the old ways of doing things till this day. It's it's, there's people that have never used it and have toured for 20 years that are, you know, finally subscribe. And, and I think it's because we have a, enough critical mass of users on it. And a typical tour is not like a business, you know, you staff up most tours during the touring cycle and then they all go off and look for other work. Right. So, so, so a lot of them become familiar with the software right. and, then, and then it's kind of like word of mouth at that point. You know, and we tried marketing, we tried advertising um, and that never yielded anything. It was just all, you know, word of mouth. It's just make a good product, you know, keep evolving, keep innovating and people will talk about it. You know, we were just doing a, a road show across the country, you know, mainly New York, Nashville, Los Angeles to try to sell it into management companies, you know, cause then you get like a network or you get a red light management or a Q prime to use it. And then they spread it across all of their tours, you know, and that, right. that was a good kind of another good kind of tick in sales and loyalty that we had, you know, it, it's overkill a bit for like a guy playing at a coffee shop and it just doesn't work, you know, for gigantic soccer stadium field level bands. Um, but it's perfect for kind of the middle ground, which is most of the tours. I mean, I, I think we have like 75% of the arena level tours using it. We've actually tried to make it more useful for the starter bands, you know, for the, the club bands, because there's tens of thousands of those tours out there. Are you planning on raising more money in the future or doing like a series B? I mean, we had such great momentum pre COVID. I think we grew 50% just, you know, from 2018 to 19, like we had reached that critical mass where kind of became not a nice to have, but a requirement to have on the tour. Right. Um, we were expanding internationally, you know, huge presence in, in Australia, Europe and Canada we had released like a multilingual version of it. So you could just switch languages. You know, we started building in these integration points with some of the biggest booking agencies, um, promoters, ticketing agencies. 2020 was going to be the year to really make all of the integration and really open up the API, you know, to anything. So it could start talking to other services and that that's just the way things work now. But there is so much excitement an opportunity just within touring to, to make things more efficient in our business. We have a great venue module. So when you build a tour and master tour, and if you plug in 20 dates at 20 venues, you know, we have a database of every performance venue in the world that have been populated either by the venue themselves, the promoter you know, or a user. So we, we have the most complete, you know, deepest data of venues in the business. So the first thing that we will do in, in our strategy has shifted a little bit due to COVID, but coming out of COVID, we'll have a system where you can finally push like the advanced process out of master tour. So when you're building a show, and again, we're, as I said, we, we were kind of post-contract, but that's kind of where most of the work, all the work comes in from the touring team. So, you know, if, if, if you're saying, hey, I'm in a band, my, my tour has been set, we're playing, you know, at uh, the Wiltern in Los Angeles. 
So that information comes to the tour and they start entering it into master tour. The production manager's job is to start reaching out to the venue and vendors and things at every market they're going to and literally calling the venue and saying, Hey, like we are coming to your venue. Um, we have this many people, you know, we have, we have this amount of uh, stage requirements of power of catering of, you know, and it, it ranges you know, from a club. It's like, Hey, we're going to show up. You, we're going to play. You pay us. Right. And then from a bigger show, it's like, you know, you think of these shows, you know, any of you guys listening, like next time you go to an arena show, you see this gigantic stage in the middle you know, of an arena. Um, that's been built starting at 7 a.m. that day, and that's going to be taken down by 2 a.m. that night. I mean, it's a moving city, you know, with 100 people involved. So um, the big thing that we're going to do during the advance process is just centralize the advance system. So then instead of the tour, talking to the venue, to the promoter, all with Excel sheets, all the phone calls, emails, attachments, you know, Dropbox, you know, Google Docs, it's all scattered. Everyone has their own system. You know, we're going to allow the production managers of Master Tour to just uh, electronically advance a templated kind of requirement sheet to the venue. And then they can just work online together and kind of, uh, you know, fine tune what is needed. That alone is going to be a huge change for the industry because now, especially on the venue side, instead of having, you know, imagine if you're, if you're the production manager of a venue and if you have 15 shows that month, you're advancing 15 different ways from 15 different tours. It's, it's terribly inefficient. And, and these are big things that can go wrong, you know, from thinking there's 30 people coming for catering, but then there's 40, like that's a bad mistake. And that costs the venue a lot more money to last minute, go out and get more catering. I mean, that's a, one example of these little last minute things that can change with our influence now. And because we have so many thousands of users, we can really just influence some more efficiencies into our platform, get the booking agencies to use part of it, get the venues to use it. Um, we have travel agencies that are integrated into it now. So, you know, a tour manager doesn't have to enter all of the changes of travel. It just appears. And that that's huge. You know, it's, um, you know, you know, I mean, the, the thing that I don't think most people realize, even at the biggest level of touring, you'll have a, a tour manager, production manager, and they, they're literally the, the CEO or, or let's call it COO and CSO, you know, the executive team of a multi-million dollar tour, you know, sometimes a $100 million tour. And they're sitting in a tiny production office, a new one every single day, making gigantic financial decisions, you know, with this moving city of infrastructure. Yeah, you know, it could and, be just and, purely based off gut. Yeah, it, it could be. And, and most of the people running these gigantic tours, their gut is right. And you can't, you know, ever automate that gut. No. You know, there, there's things that you can't, you know, have AI replace. There's things, you know, but some of these guys, you know, like a tour manager that is responsible for, maybe, you know, $8 million of hotel rooms over the cross, you know, a two year tour is also responsible for like running to the stage and handing the guys towels or making sure there's printer ink in the printer, you know, in, in any other business, this guy would be in an office with 10 people assistance, like handling everything so that this person can just make the most intelligent gut decisions about and they tour. could focus on. Yeah. They could focus on the things that financially really right. impact the tour the most or, or as a tour manager's concern is you know financially but also take care of the artist yeah. you know, even at the even at the highest level you know it's not physically mentally the best environment to be in and a big part of a tour manager's job is to you know and a babysitter is a, a undervalued definition of it but I mean, these are counselors they're therapists their moms their dads you know to these artists and um you know so the point is like instead of this tour manager having all these redundant responsibilities like let's get all the information that should be there for them without 
the data entry part or the redundancy part so they can concentrate on like saying, Hey, my, my drummer, man, he's been really bummed out. Like, why is that? Like, let's get him some help or let's, you know, it's, it's kind of a, a tricky situation to balance all that while you're juggling no sleep, being in a different city every day, being away from your family. You know, another big part we're getting to is, you know, document management because, you know, a lot of tourists still have these really well-organized kind of Google doc or Dropbox, you know, hierarchical um, shared folders, right. You know, to put all the stage plots and the ad mats and the, you know, in the accounting and the, the settlements and the budgets. Um, and again, that's great. And it independently, it works for people very well, but we're, we're really pushing for, you know, a universe where the settlement looks the same, the production advance looks the same, um, you know, the riders look the same so that like any other database would do, it just provides that efficiencies of familiarity where you know where everything is. And as a promoter, you know, you're doing, you know, you're, you could be promoting, you know, eight multi-million dollar shows uh, a month and every one has a different system. You know, the big first phase is really on the production side, the advanced sides and, and making it, you know, like you said, just getting one universal way to manage the data from the venue to the promoter, you know, to the tour that, that would save easily, you know, 10, 30% in efficiencies and where you can use that time better is where the, the, I think the profit margin will really increase. You guys have, you must have like thousands of users. Oh, we do. Uh, well, we've got about 170,000 users in our database and that, that doesn't reflect any one type of user. That's everything from a manager to business manager, to travel agent to, you know, spouse, I mean, anyone that's ever needed to interact or, or receive the data. A typical user base, you know, for let's say a theater size tour, you know, we'll have the primary executive team, you know, the tour manager, production manager, tour accountant, um, sometimes assistants, you know, use the application because they're the ones and they're the only ones responsible for editing and adding data. You don't necessarily want your drummer like updating, you know, your call times. And then you'll have like, you know, 20 or 30 mobile users. So, you know, the, the majority of our users are mobile. And that, that's actually a big part of what we're pushing to is, you know, now that we have the biggest database of users of touring professionals um, in the business, you know, we're trying to make mobile less of a passive experience. We want them to be able to, like you can already on Mestro Mobile look up like what other touring professionals suggest to do in that market. You can tag something, it's like a Yelp for touring professionals. You can say, hey, where do I get guitar strings? Where do I get after show food? What's a great hotel with bus parking? Um, but we really want to add a lot of functionality to mobile, even things like mental health, chemical abuse, you know, what, what, who can I talk to? Who, what, what, is there a local, you know, AA meeting somewhere on my day off? Yeah. I mean, the, the, like there's one in our system that it, it's the only laundry mat that still has pinball machines. Mm-hmm. And that's like a huge must stop if you're a crew and you're doing your own laundry, like you got to yeah. go to this. So it's little things, um, you know, like that, that. You know, a lot of people, again, that are going to shows, see this, you know, assume that even the artists are, you know, flying around private, staying at, you know, Four Seasons. Um, some are, but but even from the top down, you know, there's not a, a mentally, physically stable environment to be in. And if we can build resources to help that, that's a, that's a big objective. Mm-hmm. For sure. If you were to do it all over again, how would you do it differently? Um, yeah, it's hard to say. Uh you know, the, the, everything I've done in which made, you know, contained many, many mistakes, you know, bad judgment calls have only um, helped me frame where we are now better. And so it's hard to say, I wish I didn't do that. I wish I didn't do that. Cause if I, I didn't do that, I wouldn't have learned not to do it again. And I might've done it a lot worse later. Yeah. Um, 
I mean, there's nothing I would rather be doing than what I'm doing now, for sure. You know, I can't think of any uh, profession. I mean, being able to be you know, your own boss seems great, but you, know, you really have to earn it. Like you have to go through, you know, the 5,000 hours of shit, to, you know, to start enjoying it. You know, so nothing on a trajectory thing I would change. Um, I, I wish, I wish it was 10 years ago. I wish we were where we're at now, like 10 years ago. And I was 10 yeah. years younger because, uh, you know, I've always wanted to, um, not do something else, but, you know, I, I think I'm a serial entrepreneur. I'd like to, there's plenty of other of exciting things to do in this business that are not streaming. That it would be fun to have the resources to invest in, to, you know, build. But, uh, yeah, the only thing I'd wish is I just, uh, I want 10 years back. You know? <laughs> so I want to get rid of that 10 year period. That was so stressful but without sacrificing any of the life business lessons. Yeah. It to, you know, being, uh, where I am now, but, um, it'd be nice. You know, to anyone listen, the, the best advice on that is, you know, which I did early, like realized my limitations, especially on financial matters, on um, investment matters, business, accounting. Um, you know, so I, instead of, you know, really trying to master those crafts, I, I surrounded myself and I've been lucky to surround myself with those people that can do it for me and that I trust. Yeah. And that's not an excuse not to have that knowledge, but when you're limited on time and resources to do it, like the second best thing is to, you know, surround yourself with people that can. Well, Paul, thanks for sharing your lessons today. Thanks for sharing your journey. It's My been pleasure. a wild one and I'm sure a lot awesome. of people are going to love it. Great. Yeah. Look forward to it. All right. Talk soon. All right, man. Take care. Hey, what's going on, everyone? I just wanted to take a quick moment and shout all of you guys out who have been tuning into the podcast week after week, especially those of you who have taken, you know, 30 or even 60 seconds out of your day to write me personally on any of the socials on Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and really, really, really those of you who have left me a review on Apple Podcasts. I love that. Thank you for sharing your love and expressing how each episode has positively affected your path. The whole purpose of this podcast is to bring people up, give them great resources. So thank you so much. This is the kind of support that's keeping me going. Lastly, if there's anybody that you know that has an inspirational story that would maybe make a great guest, please reach out to me on any of our platforms and I'd be happy to get in touch with them. Again, thanks everyone. Much love and stay safe.